received news of a, another great hero of mine, a man that I learned from and followed. Um, I was just living a life that was a fraud. Uh, national, national pastor, worldwide pastor actually. And I think it was those kind of, the more we see fallen lives, I know, I'm not criticizing people, please. I'm not picking on people or piling on. <laughs> but the more we see fallen lives, the more we have to come to understand there's something that's missing and there's something that has to change. There's something that has to change. The world has changed so much, life has changed so much, and we have not done what we've needed to do to keep up with the changes. Not that we need to make wholesale changes in everything that we do, but being aware and taking advantage and using the, the uh, advances in technology, for example, to better serve God and better prepare people. So as we look at the idea of new wine into new wineskins and being new wineskins for Jesus, at its core, the idea is an idea of change. And I've, as I said, I've laid that out for the last two weeks, the need of it, and the need of it here at New Life. I say all that to say this, today's message is gonna be a very difficult one to hear. It's a very difficult one for me to preach. I just want you to know that. This is, a, this is a hard message for me to deliver to the church because I have to take responsibility in my own, on my own self. Uh, but I hope that you come to this message with open ears, trying to hear what it is God is trying to say to you and say to our church as a whole as we move forward. Matthew chapter 9 Beginning of verse 14 says, Then John's disciples said to him, uh, came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one patches an old garment with unshrunk cloth, because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the skins will burst, the wine spills out, and the skins are ruined. No, they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. And once again, the idea is that back in these days, they used animal skins for containers for wine. When they poured the grape juice in and allowed it to ferment, the wine expanded, the gases were released, and the wine expanded, and it stretched the animal skins. Well, animal skin can only stretch so far. And if you continue to put new wine into, into the same wineskin, eventually that wineskin would go far beyond its capacity and will burst and you would lose both the wineskin and the wine. And that's why Jesus said every time you make new wine, you use new wineskins so that you don't lose either. What Jesus was saying is, as I bring to you this new philosophy, this new, uh, th this new dispensation, if you will, this dispensation of grace, this new teaching of grace, this new way. You've got to be willing to be new within yourself. Too many times as Christians, too many times as human beings, we accept Jesus Christ and nowadays we are not willing to be new ourselves. And we want to hang on to the old and allow the new to be poured into the old and we see too much disaster in lives from lives that cannot contain the new in the old wineskin. The title of this particular message that is going to be probably two weeks is putting the brakes on. Putting the brakes on. Stopping. For some reason, we have a problem with trucks here at New Life. Our plow trucks, every one of them, the brakes go out. <laughs> And every winter, we, it's so crazy, every winter we plow with trucks that have minimal braking, braking capacity. So I, I have to resort to running into snowbanks. So you plow, you take your foot off the gas, and you allow yourself to coast into the snowbank, and the snowbank will stop you. So no matter what, Somehow, some way, in order to stop that truck, you have to get 
you have to put the brakes on. Well, I believe with the destruction and, and the dissension of the church, the descending, not dissension, the descending of the church, we need to put the brakes on. And that's what we're going to be talking about. We're losing the battle for souls. That's a fact. I have shared with you statistics over this last, this, the, the entire time we've been locked down in COVID. I've shared statistics with you of how the church is decreasing and diminishing and how we're losing people over and over and over again and how it continues to go down. And when I preached these, the, the last two messages, I shared with you those statistics both Sundays to drive home the point that we are losing the battle for souls. We're not winning the battle for souls. We're losing the battle for souls. That's obvious. Come and see has been the mantra for many churches for the last 25 years. Come and see is a philosophy that this church has followed for the last 15 years. I remember as the pastor, uh, I'm the one that brought that philosophy in about four years into my, Cliff will probably remember, uh, Zach remembers, I'm sure. About four years into my pastorate, as we began to change philosophies, we brought in the come and see philosophy, which is, is called, uh, it, it comes from purpose driven, it comes from how to grow a church, it comes from many different philosophies, but it's generally the same thing. It's a seeker sensitive uh, philosophy. And what I mean by seeker sensitive is that the emphasis of the church is put on those who are seeking something, those who are seeking a savior, Christians who are seeking um, meaning in their life. And it's quite honestly what has, what has allowed the church to develop into more of a social club and a coaching ministry. And we've, that's where pastors have called themselves life coaches and, and people have, have risen up within congregations to be spiritual life coaches. And you won't find that in the Bible. And although the come and see philosophy was strong at its core and at its theme, there was something desperately missing. Quite honestly, well, it's, it's, a, it's a philosophy that focuses on evangelism and outreach primarily. Evangelism and outreach. And then after that, it's, it focuses on worship and discipleship. But evangelism and outreach is the heartbeat. And that's why we had, we had amazing events here. Huge events that, dropped, that drew people into the church. We had no problem drawing a crowd to reach thousands, literally thousands of people over the last 15 years. But the come and see philosophy, I have to be very honest, the come and see philosophy isn't working anymore. It's just not working. Not for the vast majority of churches anyway. Large churches, mega churches that have the money and have the staff to pull off this kind of stuff, it works for them. But for most churches, churches our size, churches in our category, it's just a, it's, it's a lot. And I've honestly, over this last year, had to sit and, and evaluate, and quite honestly, it's been COVID that is real, the, the reaction to COVID that has caused me to see this and praying and talking to God and trying to get some leadership from him about what has gone wrong. Listen, if we had done our job, people would be watching online. People wouldn't have abandoned, and that's the problem. Something, that's something that was necessary to sustain, sustain that come and see philosophy. That was the deep education and discipleship of believers of all levels in our church. Now we've offered it. We've advertised it. But quite honestly, and this is the place where I as the pastor put myself out there and take full responsibility. We've offered it. We've advertised it. But quite honestly, and you can, listen, you can argue amongst yourselves about whether this is true or not, but I'm the pastor, and I'm the one that runs the show. So when I tell you that we've offered it, 
We've advertised it, but it hasn't been our priority. That should probably be the final word. Now, we can try to make ourselves feel good about the fact that we do these things, but quite honestly, it has not been our priority. Now, that doesn't mean I think we're in sin. It doesn't mean I think we haven't done a good job. It doesn't mean I think we're terribly wrong. What I, mean, what I think that means is that we honestly have to evaluate where we're at and say, are we doing what we're supposed to be doing? Is what we're doing being as effective as it's supposed to be? And are we truly fulfilling the Great Commission? See, the Great Commission isn't simply to go out and spread the gospel and make disciples. It's to grow disciples. That's the, full, that's the fulfillment of the Great Commission. <clears throat> it, should, it should not have been like that. And because of that, while we grew, and there are many times you can sit down and you can talk with Pastor Zach, and I'll be more than happy to sit down with you and uh, talk to you about the growth spurts we've had here. I mean, amazing growth spurts. Some of you have been involved in it. Some of you are, be are part of it. If we would have had, you can ask Cliff again. Cliff's been part of every one of them. If we would have kept everybody that came to our church during our growth spurts, we would probably be running four services right now. And that's not a lie. We would have to run four services to keep everybody in, in church. That's not a lie. That's a fact. And our auditorium seats 250. That's how, that's how much growth we've seen. But we were never able to sustain it. There's a reason for that. And we have to be honest. I have to be honest about that. As the pastor, I have to take responsibility and ownership for that. And before you, can, before you can truly say we need to change, we need to move forward, you have to deal with the problem. And that's been the problem. And I apologize. As the pastor, I apologize for not allowing that to be the priority in our church. Why was that so difficult and why was that so bad? Because when we hit walls, and we did, and when we developed problems, and we did, small issues that were magnified and blown out of proportion became massive cancers. And they caused mass casualties. Never, ever, should I have allowed certain things to move forward? And we, allowed, we allowed that trouble to develop into cancer. And you folks know what I'm talking about, because some of you have been through those massive, horrible times. See, I'm not saying those times won't happen. I'm saying if we as a church, if I as the pastor would have led and focused properly on what needed to be focused on, then we would have not necessarily had massive casualties. We might have lost people. Churches lose people all the time. But certain individuals who were allowed to gain a following and draw those people into sin, and, and I'm going to call it what it is. Like I said, this is a tough message. Listen, if I'm going to call myself on the carpet, I'm going to be very honest about what happened. People who drew their friends into sin and spent more time at bars than they did in Bible studies would not have been able to have that kind of an influence. So we're going to deal with that after that lead balloon is dropped into the auditorium and on the airwaves. Hopefully you're still listening to us, watching us. <laughs> What's the reason? Because we weren't growing believers in their most holy faith. Deeply and passionately. So that not only would they know how to live their faith for themselves, they would be able to live their faith with others, share their faith with others, and defend their faith to others. Quite honestly, some of the stuff we've gone through in this church has not been normal. <laughs> it's not been normal. It's not normal for a pastor and his family to be threatened 
physically threatened with harm four times in three months. And children, we got a real problem. Real problem. That's not normal. That's not what a church is about. And what is even worse than that, to me, is people that defended those people that threatened my family. We need to call people on their sin, you see. Hold them accountable for their sin. If we would have been developing deep disciples, we would have known that. We would have known how to deal with these issues. When those people would call up on the phone and say, hey, did you hear about what Pastor Zach said? You just said, you know what? If you've got a problem with Pastor Zach, you go to Pastor Zach. But I don't want to hear your BS. I don't want to hear your trash. I don't want to hear your garbage. I don't want to hear the gossip. Because that's how cancer spreads. But we didn't do that. And that lays right here. Because I did not make sure that as a church, we were moving forward and growing deep. We've been reaching many people and seeing many people come to Jesus as Savior, but we haven't grown them into maturity. That has to change. That has to change. Outreach is still incredibly important. I'm not saying we're not going to be doing outreach anymore. Please don't misunderstand me. That is a solid purpose. Evangelism is the heartbeat of God. Out, outreach is incredibly important. But here's, I remember when I preached, the, I preached a series called Come and See. Remember Cliff? I preached a series called Come and See many, many years ago. And I said, you may not know how to share your faith, but all you need to do is tell your friends to come and see. Okay, well, that works for a little while while you're growing, but there comes a point in time where come, we're, we're just saying come and see is a cop-out. Seriously. There comes a you have not grown in your faith. Evangelism is still paramount. That will never change. Good old-fashioned soul-winning, like we used to call it. But our new... Our new is going to be a more well-rounded, all-inclusive approach to church building and church growth. That's what our new is going to be at New Life. We're going to work on the depth of our church and allow God to take care of the breadth of our church. We're going to work concertedly to deepen our, our, our family. To grow our family in their most holy faith. To grow our, our fathers, our men. To grow our mothers, our wives, our women. To grow our children in their most holy faith. So that we will raise up a generation of young people. We will raise up a generation of adults, of families, who will be able to go out and reach their community with Jesus Christ. And they don't simply have to say, you know what, I don't know what I'm talking about, so just come and see. They said, come and see is still going to work if you work it right. And sometimes that is the way to get people in. But you have got to be able to share and spread your faith on your own. And I'm so sorry that I didn't push this farther and deeper and harder throughout the years. It will be education before execution. That will be one of our, that will be our new mantra. Education before execution. And no, I, I looked at that and I thought, execution, man, they think we're gonna be shooting people in here or something. <laughs> education before execution. When I was in college, there was always these Always these guys, and I think I said this Wednesday night, these old pastors would come in, and they would be teaching us young men who were uh, training for ministry and young women who were trained for ministry. And so, you know, looking back on my life as a, as a pastor in, in ministry, I now realize that if God told me I had five years to live and five years to serve him, I would spend four of them preparing and one year serving. Because preparation is so important to be being effective. And that's what we're talking about here. Listen, I'm not, I'm not saying that we throw the baby out with the bathwater. You keep the baby. I'm just saying the bathwater has become lukewarm. 
the bathwater has become stale and stagnant. And I didn't grow up this way, but I heard people grow up this way, okay? If you were one of those that grew up in a family with lots of kids and you didn't have a lot of water, and Saturday night you had to take baths, and you were like the fifth kid to go into the bathtub, there's not, <laughs> it wasn't very warm and it wasn't very clean, right? And you were basically just washing yourself with muddy, nasty water. Well, we're changing the bath water. Chuck Colson said this, think what could happen if instead of tickling ears, all the churches gave the people real meat. During the Reformation, the reformers had a phrase for this spirit. It was called semper reformandi, or always reforming. The more we continue to understand that we have not arrived, and the more willing we are to adopt the humble approach that we and our churches are in need. To be honest with you, this will not be an easy fix, and it will not be a short journey. Nothing about the Christian life is supposed to be easy or short, right? It's supposed to be the long haul. It's a marathon. Fortunately, the good thing that has come from COVID is that we are now in the perfect position to make a major philosophical change in ministry. Perfect position. Do you realize that by the time we get back to normal, where we can come together as a church, where we can meet without restrictions, it's gonna, it, it will have been about a year and a half. About a year and a half, maybe longer. It depends. On, I, I had the vaccine on Wednesday. Whew. They say that the worse the side effects, the more it's taking hold. Well, I must be immune to like everything in the world now. Because Thursday, I was like, oh my gosh. And even today, my legs are heavy. It's like, it's like doing three days of legs in a row at the gym. My legs are just heavy. And I had, I, it, remember when you were a kid, some of you, you the rose, raised up on computers, you don't know what these things are. But remember kaleidoscopes? You got those little, little cardboard things with lenses at each end, and you'd turn them and they would constantly change shapes and colors. That was, <laughs> that was Wednesday night for me. I felt like I was in the kaleidoscope of COVID um, symptoms because for, for like five seconds I would have a headache and then five seconds I would have chills and then five seconds I would have a flush from a fever and five seconds my body would ache and it, was just, it just kept going like that. And then Thursday it set in and it was just the body aches to where I went up to get a, I'd walk up to get a cup of coffee and I'd take a step and my feet hurt. So I think it's working. <laughs> but this is the perfect time. It's the perfect time for us. We're perfectly situated to make a major philosophical change in our church. And that's what we're going to do. The target date to start what we're talking about is sometime after Easter. It depends on how, I think by Easter, we're back up to 40%. Today's the first Sunday we're back up to 40% capacity. And I think at 40% capacity, we can do a Wednesday night pro, which is where we're going to start all this is a Wednesday night program, man. Wednesday night Bible studies. Our, our worship team met with me this week. I love our worship team, man. This is a group with a heart for God. They said, we want to be a part of this. We want to use part of our practice time as worship time for this Wednesday night thing. And it, it's a dual purpose thing. But it's awesome. And, and just to see the passion they brought to that meeting was amazing. So Wednesday night, we're going to start with some worship. We're going to have some prayer. And then we're going to break up into groups. And we're going to have a kids ministry. And we're going to have different small groups. And we're working on all that right now. And we're working on a name for it because the name I have right now is really terrible. <laughs> Education night in, East, in New Life. Yeah, that'll draw a crowd. It's been a long time in prayer, thought, meditation, and counsel to get to this point. I don't want you to think that this has been easy. This has been something that I've been praying about and thinking about and trying to get an answer to since well before last summer. This has been, a, this has been almost a year-long process of trying to understand and interpret what it is that I was seeing and coming to grips with. But I believe with all my heart that this is the way that God wants us to go. 
It's going to take a buy-in from everyone in the church. We're all going to have to buy into this if it's going to be successful. And I promise you, if we'll buy in, it will be successful. We will grow. We'll develop a passion for our faith. And we'll develop a passion for those outside because we will see what we have and what they need. In short, we'll, do exactly, we'll be doing exactly what Jesus commanded us to do. Even down to the kids. But to get there, there are some first steps that we have to take in order to set ourselves up for the next steps of spiritual growth and put real growth into action. And that's what this next, this message is about. It's about the steps that we have to take to put ourselves in position to accept the new. First thing is this, we must start asking God to make us better. You ever asked that of God? Have you ever sat down and said, God, would you please all five of my children? A better grandfather to all six of my grandchildren? And a better husband to my wife? I'm 58 years old, man. It'd be nice to sit. I just, I started talking with my doctor. I think I had a phone call Friday with my VA doctor. And I said, it's time. <laughs> so she got the ball rolling to get my left hip replaced. She said, yeah, three years ago, we looked at the x-rays and it was mild to moderate um, degeneration in your hips. So now I'm sure it's moderate to severe. Like, well, I'm telling you, it's severe. <laughs> it hurts to walk, man. But I constantly ask God to make me a better man. I ask him to make me a better pastor, to make me a better preacher, to make me a better teacher, to make me a better leader, to make me a better friend. And we need to start asking God to make us better. And that goes counter. I think you need to like yourself. I think you need to accept yourself and love yourself as a creation of God. No doubt. As a child of God. But the Bible constantly teaches us that we must change and grow and desire to be better. So we need to ask God that. Psalm 51 verses 6 through 10 David said, surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. This was a man. Of course, this is David's great prayer of confession. But this is also a man who... The Bible says was a man after the very heart of God, saying to God, create in me a clean heart. Do you ask God that every day when you go to your devotions, when you read your Bible? Did you know that in the book of James, James tells us, if you lack wisdom, ask God and he'll give it to you. God's a great teacher. Did you know with God there's no stupid question? Did you know with God there's no irrelevant question? God wants to hear from you. He wants to know what you want to know. And he wants to teach you what you need to learn. How does this begin? The first thing we have to do, and man, if, you raise, if you're raising your children right, this is something you teach your kids. We battle with this all the time. Battle this with Gabriel and Michael. Take responsibility for your actions. Church, take responsibility for your actions. It's not fun. Listen, I'll tell you what, I'm not, I usually listen back to my sermon during the week. I'm not quite sure I want to listen to this one. This isn't fun. It's no fun to take responsibility for your actions. But I know that taking responsibility for my actions as a man, as a pastor, is exactly what I'm supposed to do. And is exactly what I need to do to address the issue within myself and to address the issue within my church. And if you are going to grow in your faith, if you are truly going to go to God and say, God, just what do I, knew, what do I need to do to get better? The first thing he's going to tell you is this. You need to take responsibility for your actions. You need to own your choices. You need to own your decisions, whether they're good or bad. Stop blaming each other. Stop blaming other people. 
Stop blaming people who have hurt you. You can't change that, but you can wallow in the misery of it. Always find it funny that we don't want to go certain places in our house at night when there's no light that we would have no problem going into during the day when we can see, right? There's nothing there in the dark that isn't there in the light. But we're afraid. It's not that we're afraid of the basement. We're afraid of the dark, right? There's nothing down there that wasn't there in the light. We just need the courage to face certain things in our life. We need the courage to face our fears. Some of you, some of you watching on Facebook, some of you need to have the courage to face and accept the fact that you still need to be discipled in basic Christian faith. In your basic Christianity. You need to, you need to accept that. That you need to go through a basic, bare bones, straight up, discipleship course. And we're going to offer that. I have already had two people volunteer to teach discipleship on Wednesday nights. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. You need to have the courage to face your frustrations. Hard passages of scripture. Frustrations in your life. Why aren't things working out the way they're supposed to? Why don't my children respond the way I want them to respond? Perhaps. I always, I always try to say to people who come to me about issues with their children, I always try to say, remember who the adult is in the relationship. Okay? This isn't a... Parenting is not a partnership with children. You got... Just kidding. Just kidding. They don't have the right to vote. They don't have the right to call the shots. They don't have the right to tell you what's going to happen in your home. You are the adult. Perhaps the reason you're frustrated is because you're allowing your children to run your home and you're not taking responsibility as the parent. Frustrations in your marriage. Perhaps you're not showing the proper love and the proper compassion. Frustration in your walk with the Lord. Are you putting the effort in? I mean the honest effort. I'm not talking about reading something on your phone in the morning. I'm talking about putting the honest effort in the honest effort into sitting down and reading your Bible and studying. Man, there are so many Bible study tools out there. Blue Letter Bible, Bible.com, Bible.org, whatever that is. So many different things to really study and learn and understand. Exercise the courage needed to face your prejudices. And I'm not just talking about black and white, but I am talking about black and white. And prejudice towards other people. Some of you watching, some of you have friends that um, they really want to come back to new life. But there's an issue with pride. Tell them it's okay. Nobody's angry with them. I didn't ask anybody to leave in the first place. They're welcome back here. I got no problem with that. I'm not about winning if I would, let's be honest, okay? I'm going to bring a little humor, but it's quite, it's quite honestly true. If I was all about winning, I would not be a Rams fan. Okay? I, let's be honest. If I was all about winning, I wouldn't be a Rams fan. I'd be a Patriots fan because, Lewis, if you're a Patriots fan, you can change teams if they don't win. Whoops. Isn't that what they do? <laughs> I'm just, just I would be a bandwagon guy if I was all about winning. I'm not about winning. All, I'm not all about winning. I think playing the game is 90% is, is of the fun. So with people who, who want to be back here, they know this is their home, exercise the courage to tell them, you know what, knucklehead, don't use that word. But you know what, friend? You're welcome back. Nobody's upset with you. You're not going to have to get up in front of the church and apologize. Jeez, just come back. What happened when the prodigal son returned? The father didn't beat him. 
He didn't put him on a pole. Man, he hugged him. He kissed him on the neck. And he had a barbecue. And Lord knows I love a good barbecue. Really good barbecue. Fact is, the deeper we allowed the divide to grow, the farther the infection will spread. We need to exercise the courage to face our misconceptions. Our misconceptions about spiritual growth, about Bible study. To face our bad decisions and accept and admit our bad decisions. I don't, I'm going to jump back a minute. I don't regret putting the come and see philosophy into our church because we've seen literally hundreds and hundreds of people accept Jesus as their savior. I would never regret that. What I do, what I do realize is my big mistake was not pushing hard enough for the education piece. Vicki knows exactly what I'm talking about. Because she would talk to me on Wednesday nights, we would have the conversation, and Vicki would say, why, why, why aren't more people here? Why aren't more people here? Why aren't more people here? And it's because we had the horse before, the cart before the horse. So be willing to admit your bad decisions. The greatest fool is the fool that thinks they're always right. And exercise the courage to face your lack of hope. The second, thing we, the second step we have to make is this. This is a tough one because this has been bred into us in churches and in society. We have to resist the urge to be cool relevant. We have to resist the urge to be cool relevant. I'll tell you what. So you, why... All these, all these Christian artists. First of all, why do we have to call them artists? Okay? You're a musician. You're a singer. It was good enough for my generation. Why now do you have to be called an artist? Because you have to be cool. Why do you have to have this crazy haircut that looks like you didn't, didn't comb your hair? Why do you have to wear the clothes, the skinny jeans? You've got the, the scoop neck for a man. Have any of my boys ever put on a scoop neck shirt? You don't want to know what I'd do to them. Sorry. They're not maniacs, maniacs, you know, from, what was that movie? Um, I forget. But, <laughs> you like that one? Flash dance. This is a flash dance, man. They're not doing a Jane Fonda video. But I, I see that, man. It, it's, it's all about being cool. We have pastors wearing $800 sneakers. And, and I, I've talked with pastors, and Zach and I have, have read manuals and books where, pe where churches say that. The leadership says that. We monitor the style so that we can keep up with it. It has nothing to do with church growth. It has nothing. You know why I dress the way I do? Because I'm very comfortable this way. Very comfortable. This is who I am. Not to be cool. I don't, th I don't think people think I look cool. I think people think I look like a 58-year-old man who used to work the docks. I don't know. I, I just think that that's what they... I don't dress like I do to look cool. I dress this way because this is how I am. This is, this is me. This is Honest John. And I think Honest John is who needs to be presented to the church as the pastor. But we've got to resist that urge to be cool for cool's sake because we think that that's what's going to draw a crowd. The common term that we have for that is being in the world but not of the world. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. You say, well, Pastor John, you're an old cranky man that says, get off my lawn to every kid that drives up. That might be true. <laughs> but what I just said has a scriptural principle behind it. 
And you find it in 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world and its lust is passing away. But the one who does the will of God remains forever. Remember, we we say this all the time. Jesus said, if if I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to me. He used the example of Moses in the Old Testament. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. When we have to be cool like the world, we're saying that Jesus isn't enough. We're saying that we need trendy, trendy gimmicks to draw a crowd. And if you, keep, if you get them with trendy gimmicks, you're going to keep them with trendy gimmicks. Because you're not digging people deep in their faith. And I'm not saying we have to sing hymns and go to trifold amens, three-piece suits with a collar bar and women in, you know, uh, their Sunday best. Listen, I learned a long time ago, some people's Sunday best is exactly what I'm wearing today. That's some people's Sunday best. You know that less than 25% of all men in America own a suit coat or a sport coat? That's why there's an entire industry of renting suits. Not tuxedos, suits. You can rent a suit to go to a business meeting. Quite honestly, I'm not going to go to that part, but that's okay. John 17, verses 14 through 16 says, I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. How many times does Jesus have to tell us this? We're not of this world. The desires and passions that are in this world are not what's supposed to grip and grab a hold of us. That's not saying we don't have, the th- have possessions. That's not saying that we don't enjoy vacation, that we don't enjoy this world. God created this world and this earth for our pleasure and enjoyment. The Bible, what he's trying to tell us is that this is not your home. Don't get so connected to it. Don't get so attached. James 4, 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? And that's what we've done. We've brought, we, the church in, in America has, gone, has, has held hands with the world. And I've got to be honest with you, that's what I, I believe that's exactly why we've seen so many Christians stop going to church, and I think it's why we've seen so many high-profile pastors and their wives fall. And they haven't fallen because they've been exhausted. They've fallen because they're in sin. The individual I was talking about, I can't even mention his name because it breaks my heart. I read the report that was done, the investigation, and it brought me to tears. Because this is a man that I, this is, this is a man that I never met, but I looked up to and I learned from. And it was a systemic Horrible life that he was living. Incredibly, incredibly duplicitous life. It, it, it's just incredible. And it's because we, have, we, we hold hands with the world. But we don't draw that line. What's the third thing, last thing we're going to talk about today? We must be consistent in our line drawing. We must be consistent in our line drawing. Where do you draw your lines in life? Where do you say, this is all, this is as far as I can go? As Popeye said, I've, uh, I've, I've had all I can take and I can't take no more. Something like that. Where do you draw your lines? Let's be honest, moral, morality and ethics present challenges. Morals and ethics present challenges. They really do. They absolutely do, especially when society questions that morality. When society, rock music, I remember when that was huge, it was just sinful, sinful pastors would, you weren't a real pastor of a real church if you didn't have a series on, on the evils of rock music and Christian rock. And he talked about second chapter of Acts and Steve, Keith Green and, and those guys, they were evil incarnate. Amy Grant, she was horrible. That's what they would say. And now they all have her albums. (laughs) But they do, they present a problem. Morality and ethics 
present a problem to Christians because <laughs> what we learn in here and what we're taught to live in here and what we're taught to live when we Look, when we dig into the Word of God is different than what is going on out there and what's acceptable out there. And if you're the one to live morality and ethics at work, you're the one that nobody wants to be a part of, right? In many places. I, listen, I manage of their tips and not claim all their tips. And I worked for managers, I worked for owners that skirted the roof. I worked for one owner. Ugh. This hopefully, hopefully this won't turn you off from going out and going to restaurants. But he had a whole crew. They were all paid under the table because they were illegal immigrants. They worked in the back of the house and they would take the trash. This is not a lie. They would take the trash bags and they would go into the back room where there was a, a, a hose and a, a, um, a drain in the floor and they would open up the trash bags and they would go through the trash to find <laughs> to find silverware, to find unopened creamers, and to find unopened jelly packets. And they would rinse them off and put them back. (laughs) (laughs) All to save a buck. (laughs) I remember one time somebody told me as they had just done something that was just obvious. They confessed to it. Theft. They said, I may be a thief, but I'm not a liar. (laughs) Oh, okay. So So your morality and ethics have certain lines. But those are the kind of things that we struggle with. You can cheat on your taxes, but not your spouse. It's not, the, what, it's not what you cheat on, it's the fact that you cheat. Luke 16, 15 says, And he told them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly admired by people of society and professions that have ethical standards and what Americans see as having the highest ethical standards, nurses rank top at an 89%. 89% of America thinks they have strong ethics. Medical doctors at 77%, grade school teachers, it was amazing they didn't say high school teachers, they said grade school teachers, 75% of America thinks they are ethical. Police officers, it drops way down to 52%. And they're sitting at 39%, check this out, man, at 39% of America thinking they have ethical standards, clergy. Clergy, 39%. Just above bankers at 29%, journalists at 28%, and so forth. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is to be chosen over great wealth. Favor is better than silver or gold. Romans 12.2, Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Not only do we have to learn where our lines are drawn, but we have to stop normalizing sin. Stop normalizing sin. 1 John 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Genesis 3, 12, through 13, 12 and 13, the man replied, the woman you gave to me to be with me, she gave me some fruit of the tree and I ate it. The Lord asked the woman and the woman said, what, and, and said, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. See, Adam and Eve both blamed somebody else. Neither one of them took responsibility. Ephesians 5.12 says, for it's shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. It's a shame for us to normalize sin. Romans 14, 12, so that each of us will give account of himself to God. Understand this, calling sin what it is is not wrong. Calling sin, sin is not wrong. We don't condemn people, we don't berate people, we don't destroy them. And we don't destroy ourselves, but calling sin, sin is not wrong. Acceptance and tolerance have their place. But churches, evangelical churches, are being split right now over tolerance of sin. Not going to go any deeper into it than that. A 
Acceptance and tolerance do have their place, but when we love the sinner and excuse the sin, we're giving people a false sense of security. You do understand that, right? When we love the sinner but excuse the sin, we're giving people a false sense of security. When my sons do something wrong, the two boys that still, the two sons I have that still live at home, even my 37-year-old son, you have no idea how it's not going to last long until he gets out and starts his own church, then he's going to be on his own. As long as he works for me at New Life, I hold Zach accountable. And you folks have no idea. He, you, guys, you folks think he gets away with everything? <laughs> That's the farthest thing from the truth. You have no idea. No idea the conversations we have and how angry he gets, to, gets with me for two days and then says, hey, Dad, you want to have a catch? <laughs> But I do my sons no favor if I don't hold them accountable for their wrongdoing. I love them. I love them to death. I'll still take them out for a milkshake because I love a good milkshake. You can see that. But I'm trying, to raise, I'm trying to raise young men of a character and integrity. If I don't hold them accountable for what they've done, if I excuse their sin, I'm not doing them any favors. That's the same thing in the church. And if we, don't hold, if we don't let people know they're accountable for their sin out there, they're going to die and go to hell. God loves us right where we are. But when we tell people, believers and unbelievers, that their sin is acceptable, we're lying and hurting the ministry of the gospel. Accountability is important. Proverbs 28, 13 says, The one who conceals his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces will find mercy. And that's where we're going to stop this morning. Next week, we'll pick up with the fourth step that we need to take. And as we go through this sermon, it's going to lead up to the steps of action that we are going to be taking as a church as we implement this new education before execution philosophy. I'm excited about it. I feel better now that I got through this first message because it was heavy on my heart. And I hope that you have received it. And I hope that it, uh, it has encouraged you and lit a fire in you for what's going to happen here at New Life. But I'm excited about what God has for this church. I'm excited about what's going to be going for what's going to happen going forward. People I've talked to already about Bible studies and small groups and things like that that we're going to be implementing are excited. They're just excited about it. So I can't wait. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege of being in your house today. And thank you for those who came out and spent time with us. Thank you for those who joined us online. God, I pray that what was said today, Lord, though it was difficult to hear and though it was difficult to deliver, God, may it be cleansing for us. May it be uh, a release for us. May it be eye-opening. God, I pray that we'll not take it as criticism, and I pray that we'll not take it as a beatdown. <laughs> but God, I pray that we'll receive it in love with open ears. Father, bless us as we go from here today, and may we honor you.